six, five, four, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Physics Lounge. I am your host, uh, Stephen Kenyon, and I am joined here today by my co-host, Taylor Jakovich. Hello. So, Taylor, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on this week in the world of grad school physics? Um, not very much, to be honest. I've spent most of my weeks, well, I spent the beginning of my week preparing for a rather intense midterm in statistical mechanics. And then Tuesday and Wednesday were punctuated by um, teaching, you know, teaching just uh, your standard undergraduate astronomy lab. And then the world briefly ended, but it seems to have come back around. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the sort of life-work balance expected out of a graduate student? I mean, you're expected to study, uh, do homework, do tests, but then you're also expected to do, at least in this point of the game, you have basically a job where you have to teach these students. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's very true. Like, there's a lot going on, and I mean... Most of your professors are fairly understanding of that, and they'll even if they aren't the mo like they are aware that they give you a lot of work. They still give you a lot of work, but they're aware that like things happen, and sometimes you have to make choices on what you're working on and what you have to prioritize. But really, and I can't vouch for this yet because I haven't gotten there yet. But I've been told that it's like the first two years. Or like running, like kind of running a marathon in sprint mode. Like you're just constantly sprinting, but it just never, you never seem to get to the end. But then after that, after you take the qual, it just kind of levels out and you're focused on your research and apparently it gets very nice. Right, uh, so you're in your second year now and I guess you're coming up on qual soon? Yeah, uh, that would be next spring. Yes. Yeah. So not too far away. You, you still have some time to breathe in between there. Breathe is a relative term, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I know it's been a lot of fun. Sleep hasn't, like, sleep has come and gone. Uh, but uh, it's like one of those things where you have to, you have to want to do it. Like, if you don't, if this isn't something that you really want to do, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have fun. So, like, that brings up a second question, though, since. There's sort of two different paths that you get to experience as a graduate student, but you've only felt the one path so far, which is teaching. Um, do you sort of lean more towards one or the other? Do you enjoy doing the teaching more, or would you rather be in the lab? Um, well, my two research paths right now, because I'm playing around with quantum field theory, and then um, I'm also playing around with... Uh, what is it? Uh, where we're modeling and examining gamma ray bursts, which are Stargo supernova, large chunk of relativistic matter goes flying out into the interstellar medium and it slams into it with gamma factors of like 25, 50. You know, and so it's then that's where you get your gamma rays from the gamma ray burst. Very but, high energy stuff, right? Oh yeah, incredibly high energy. We're talking like high, like high. High KEV, low MEV bursts. Hmm. Even like some of them get up into like the GEVs, with oh, giga, wow. like giga electron volts for those right. of you playing at home. Um, 
But yeah, so it's a lot of like not so much lab per se. Like I spend a lot of time sitting in front of a computer. Well, you know, at the end of the day, that's still sort of research. I guess in a way there's a difference between doing research on a computer and then, you know, being actually in a sort of the more traditional sense of a lab. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I don't really want to knock either of those paths. I think both have very valid uh, uses. But... Oh, of course. And I mean, like some, like astronomy and astrophysics, there's no, like you have like observational, even now, if you're working with one of the space-based, obs- space-based observatories, like the people who maintain those are not in a lab because your lab would be, is circling the planet, you know? So it's like, you have to be very flexible. Right. Yeah. We're getting a new one of those. Did you know that? What's that? We're getting a new one of those, James Webb. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course, the James Webb telescope. That's coming up very soon. That's going to launch uh, this coming year. I yeah, know it's so, so far now. Yeah, um, the my lead for um, like my lead professor, like the the professor actually teaches the, the class for the labs that I TA. Right. He was up at NASA for meetings the other day, and he came back and he was all excited because he had pictures of them folding the James Webb back up because it's up at NASA Goddard right now. So it's only mm-hmm. that's like right up the road from here. Yeah. And so Guard Space Flight Center. Yeah, that's the one. And it's so he had these pictures and they had taken it down because it used to be up and it's fold and they folded it in half. And he was all excited, like, guys, it's coming. It's really gonna happen. Yeah, because that thing's been decades in the making. Oh yeah. That is a really fantastic piece of technology. Just the the fact that they're gonna hump, you know, haul it out to a Lagrange point and just let it sit there. And then they're going to have sails on the back so that it's nice and cool and, you know, that it's not going to move away from the Lagrange point. Because this thing's operating in the IR range, and in order to do that, you need to have a very chilled telescope. Yeah. To do that on Earth, you have to, we're talking about liquid helium cooling at best. <laughs> no, even then, like, it's so hard, especially with our atmosphere is very IR opaque in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's like we really need a telescope like this. It's unfortunate that it's not going to be a true Hubble replacement, but you couldn't. I mean, we had uh, one of the mission scientists. Uh, oh God, what's his name? I can't for the life of me remember what his name was. But he was he won a Nobel Prize for, among many other things, like this W map and looking at the cosmic microwave background. But he's just, oh, uh, I should know his name. Editing point in here. Insert name. Yes, we need to know his name. <laughs> but uh, anyway. he came to talk at GW, and he was talking, and so they cl- the um, they plated the mirror is actually gold. It's gold yes. plated. Yes. But so gold is very IR absorbent, or um, not, it's IR reflective. It's visible Correct. light absorbent. And- right. And so it's they had to make the cutoff around six, the cutoff at six hundred nanometers. So you get the red, but you don't get much. Right, else. you don't get anything below that for the most part. Yeah, but I mean, if I remember correctly, it it, it needs to be cooled to something around um, forty Kelvin. Um, I think, and I or below forty Kelvin. And yeah. I think that they're predicting that it's going to operate somewhere. The operating point is going to be like thirty three Kelvin. So they're doing a little bit better than what the uh, spec is mm-hmm. for the James Webb. I know, like, Very the, cool. yeah, like the solar shade, 
gets them down to that, and then they have one instrument that's cool to like some like I think it's like twelve k. But that's yeah. a short. That's a that has a short operational life because it's active cooling. Right. Yeah. Like Spitzer. Yeah, I mean Spitzer's kind of a little bit better to compare it to since that's the other IR telescope, IR space telescope. Hmm. But it's just nothing has a mirror like James Webb is going to have. Thanks. No, meter. this thing is going to be massive. Five meters across. Yeah. It's huge. It is. It's to gonna... put that in perspective, you can kind of think like a human's like 1.2 meters tall, roughly, right? 1.2, 1.3. Uh, like average? Yeah, around yeah. that. I think you're probably closer to like 1.7, 1.8. Well, yeah, but I'm a giant. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair so enough. like just imagine a bunch of average-sized humans stacked on top of each other. Uh... uh... Or to put it another way, the Hubble Space Telescope's about the size of a bus, and this thing's more than two and a half times bigger with, as far as primary mirror goes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, but it's so light because of the way they, they folded it up like a pretzel. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the animations of it unfolding? I have. Oh. It's amazing. It is amazing. And then, again, that dude, he was like, yeah, so it, it's actually a much more violent unfolding than they make it seem. Oh, yeah, the animation, everything is, like, streamlined. It looks like there's no, you know, like, discernible pauses in between the stages within the animation. No. And then they have the frame rate of the animation itself going at, like, 120. So it just looks, like, perfectly done. But then when you think about it, it's just like, oh, this is probably going to just be, like, some robotic jerkiness at some stage. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that the solar sail is literally just, like, a mylar balloon that they inflate. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's going to, like, well, if everything goes well, it's going to be fantastic. It is. <laughs> oh, man, I'm excited. Hmm. So, um, just to continue with a little bit about what's been going on at grad school f for you, because, you know, uh, that's the path that you took, and I guess we'll talk about my path a little bit later, what it's like to go from undergrad straight to the private sector. But, uh, Basically, how did you find your first year, and I guess a little bit of your second year now? I mean, it like it was a it was an adjustment because I suddenly found myself with a lot more to do and a lot less time to do it in. Right. You know, and like obviously moving, you know, moving from very small town USA, like we uh, small town Gettysburg, right? Yeah, small town Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. You know, lived in a seminary. <laughs> Lived in a Lutheran seminary, which I love to bring up just because people are so confused by that statement. Well, I mean, you have to teach Lutheran pastors somewhere, and they all do it in the seminary. No, they it's just gather them all together. It's, it's it's not the fact that the seminary exists; it's that I was there. <laughs> well, that too. I mean, it's just like Gaysburg College. Hey, you're out of residence halls. <laughs> Let's just push you over here in the Lutheran Seminary. But it turns out it's actually the nicest living conditions anywhere. No, that was... Yeah, no, we got really lucky with that. Yeah. Yeah, but... So, yeah, Seminary, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Then moved to 
Washington, D.C., so we're talking the capital of the United States, you know? It's not the biggest city, but it's still, like, 600,000 people, and then the Arlington, like, the metro area is even bigger than that. Like, Arlington, Virginia is even more built up than D.C. is. Right. So, so, and then, you know, and then I moved in with my significant other of, I think, at that point, two years? Yeah, two years. We're going on three now, so this is... Ah, it's... Like just been a lot of a lot of adjustments, but no, it working out really well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So I've never felt so informed and so intelligent and so utterly dumb at the same time as I do right now. Yeah, it turns out that once you leave undergraduate, you have a full understanding of everything that you don't know. Yeah. Well. To say that better, you have a full understanding of how much you don't actually know. Yeah, no, that's a really fantastic way to say it. And then you find yourself questioning the stuff that you do know. Yeah. Like, I just, I feel like I've never known so much in my life, but I've never felt stupider. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is that or at least for me, I found that I've surrounded myself, you know, they say the old saying, surround yourself in a room full of people that are smarter than you. Or I guess, I don't know, would you call that a saying, an idiom? Mm, I think it's more of an idiom, but yeah. Yeah. That's basically how I feel, that I've managed to find a bunch of people smarter than me, and I find that that works, hmm. that I'm able to learn a lot from that. Oh, I would agree with that. Uh, I don't like being the smartest person in the room. Uh, I mean, because it's not that fun. Sometimes it's a little fun. Eh, well, I mean, like... Not in not long term, but like... How know. much enjoyment do you get from, you know, lecturing 10-year-olds? I mean... I like the light bulb moment. I'm not gonna lie. Like, when you're sitting there and you explain something to someone and you just see it, and they, you can tell that they've gotten something. They've seen something in the universe that they hadn't before. And, like, I, I like that moment. Like, it's... Yeah. That is a good moment. Or especially when they're all just like, oh, now I understand. And then they actually go ahead and do it. And you see that they did it correctly. Mm. That's, that's a great moment. That's also a great moment. Yeah, it's just so... it's. Like, I feel like you have to spend equal amounts of time in both situations. You have to realize, like, you're not you're not the smartest person that's ever lived. You know? Right. And, like, even if you were in some specific field, it's like you're not blanket the smartest person. It's just that's not something that can happen anymore. It's probably something that never actually happened. But you also have to realize you ha- you know more in your state now than a lot of other people do about your specific field. And so you should share that in some way, but you shouldn't stop learning. So like it's all about balance. Hmm. I bet you in certain states it's easier to be the smartest person in the state than the other states. No comment. <laughs> uh, what was it? Arlington, Virginia though, it's one of the most educated counties in the United States. I believe it. It has um, 
Georgetown is technically Arlington, right? No, Georgetown's uh, D.C. Really? Yeah. I thought it was part of Virginia. Nope. Georgetown. Huh. It's very well, close. Georgetown, not the university. I'm talking about the actual no, neighborhood. It's, no, it's D.C. Huh. It's like right across the river from Roslyn. I did not know that. Hmm. Edit this part out. <laughs> uh, there we go. Um... <laughs> I think the median education in Arlington is like a master's or something like that. I mean, that makes sense. And then the median... Well, at the same time, most of the people that live in Arlington are in the mid to late stages of their career. And so they naturally have masters. And they also tend to work primarily in either the lobbying or the defense industry. Truth. And they work overwhelmingly in D.C. They just can't afford to live there. I would think that Arlington's much more expensive than D.C. in certain spots. Um, yeah, like, Roslyn can be expensive, but it's, like, living in D.C., there's a lot of... And, like, if you're in Northwest... Oh, like, in D.C. proper. Yeah, yeah, like, if you're in, like, Northwest D.C. or you're in um, Georgetown, that area, or even, like, Columbia Heights, uh, like, that section of the Northeast is getting a lot more expensive. Where it's, like, like, that's why we live where we live, because we couldn't afford to live in the city, especially with a car. Yeah. yeah. For those of you looking to, looking to move to D.C., if you have a car, that's going to severely limit you unless you want to pay through the nose for parking. So just keep that in mind. Would you recommend the car, though? It's useful, especially if you can't afford to live particularly close to a metro station or if you, like, you want to go home regularly. Like, I know some of the, like, I have a, one of my friends, like, grad student friends lives in California and they fly home a lot. Because you know, obviously driving is impractical, but for us it right. makes more sense to drive. Right. And it's like if we want to go get groceries, because grocery store is like a mile away, we'd either have to hop the bus or walk. But we can just, and so it gives us more freedom to do other things, even if we don't only use it once a week. Yeah. But like you could definitely do without a car. It's not a necessity. I mean, that's what most of the undergraduates do, I imagine. Oh, yeah, no, no one... They don't bring cars. No. But um, Foggy Bottom is really built up, like, everything. Like, I, I think we were talking earlier, there are seven coffee shops within, like, a quarter mile of my office. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so, so for most of this week, we were out of styrofoam cups. So we have free coffee. It's not great coffee. It's actually horrible, horrible coffee. But it's still coffee, and it's free. So, um... But the thing is, if you don't have styrofoam cups there and you don't have a mug that you brought in with you, you're kind of out of luck. And so for most of the week, we didn't have any styrofoam cups, which meant no coffee. And so today I was at my limit because, you know, the previous days I had like, I was dwindling off of my usual three to four. I was down to like one to two. Mm. But today, man, there was just absolutely no styrofoam cups. So I I don't know when I talked to you. It must have been like around th- three or four. Yeah. But I just like reached the lowest point where I would have I actually needed to leave work to drive to Dunkin' Donuts to get coffee to not feel terrible anymore. But as I was walking out, I saw that the styrofoam cups was just delivered, and I was just like, "This is great. This is perfect." <laughs> yeah. I grabbed a cup of coffee, drank it. <laughs> And then got another cup. (laughs) 
Uh, no, it's funny because I got that sense of relief through the Facebook message. Like I could just tell, like, oh, this is like he's gotten like he's just feeling significantly better now. I was like, I could actually function and do real work. Oh, no, it was call great. What was it? I felt particularly bad when you first brought up the styrofoam cup thing because I had literally just picked up a styrofoam cup from the table in the in the like the physics like conference room and poured myself a cup and then <laughs> sat down to read that message. <laughs> it was such a sad point in my day. It was definitely the low. <laughs> I'm sorry. You should get a mug though. Just keep it on your desk. Yeah, but then, well, so sometimes I do that, but you do need to bring it home and clean it. Oh, you don't have a sink or anything? No. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the problem. We don't actually have break room. Mm. Other groups do. We don't. We don't have a sink. Oh, I'm sorry. We have sinks, but they're for chemicals. So probably not a place you want to wash your mug. No. That's fair. Backsplash and whatnot. Yeah. Just get casual chemicals in your coffee. Yeah, oh, just a little hydro hydrofluoric acid. <laughs> that would ruin you. So you don't you have a larynx not. anymore. At least you got your caffeine. You wouldn't have bones anymore. <laughs> that stuff eats calcium. Yeah. For breakfast. Yeah, walk it off. So, like, if you actually work with HF, um. I don't know if this is OSHA, but they're, if it's an OSHA requirement or just like, well, it's obviously generally good health, but what they do is they give you a calcium stick. It's like this ointment that you can rub on the uh, site of a spill if you get HF on you before you actually get sent to the hospital. Because, you know, the HF, it just goes straight through the skin and through the muscle and then it coats the bones and starts dissolving the calcium. So the risk is obviously infection. Right. And so the fact want... that you no longer have bones in that area. So... <laughs> That's a fairly <laughs> And it's horrible, but it's hard not to laugh. <laughs> Turns out that that's not actually the worst chemical that chemists use or synthesize. Right. It just happens to be one of the like widest you know, use chemicals that tend to be dangerous. What is it? There's a SciShow about that. And they talked about, like, the most flammable, like, chemical. And I can't for the life of me remember what its name is. But it was, like, it was in a steel drum. It was broke... it phosphine? Maybe. I, I could have... Like, phosphine itself, I, I was looking at this today. Bear in mind, I, I am no chemistry person. I just do pure applied physics. Mm. which is kind of a misnomer. How do you have pure applied physics? I do applied physics. <laughs> um, I think chlorine trifluoride. Yes, that's one of them. That's pretty nasty. But also phosphine gas, because it has another... It's not always pure phosphine for technical-grade phosphine. Mm -hmm. It has another uh, chemical in it diphosphane and it turns out that that's like flammable if it's exposed to the atmosphere it'll just light on fire okay so its existence makes it flammable or makes it explode 
Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. That's probably entirely wrong. <laughs> but I don't know enough about the chemical composition to actually describe how it works. I'm curious. Might be worth checking out. Yeah. Could do an episode on it. Speaking of episodes, so in the future, um, there's some things that I just saw that I wanted to talk about or thought about talking about. Okay. Oh, I guess we're done, by the way. Done! Oh, we're done. I'm stopping then. The Physics Lounge is a cooperative effort of Stephen Kenyon and Taylor Jakovich. It is produced whenever it can be and on whatever topic we find interesting at the time. You can find more about The Physics Lounge, as well as more podcasts and blog posts at thephysicslounge.blogspot.com. You can also find our podcast on SoundCloud and tweet at me at Tajax. Additionally, you should tell Steve he needs a Twitter. Thank you.